Today we want to look at uh, fulfilling our roles as men. Fulfilling our roles as men. We have roles, and they need to be fulfilled. Now over the years, Time Magazine, which, was not, which is not a bastion of evangelical truth by any stretch of the imagination, <laughs> but nevertheless, Time Magazine has featured several articles documenting how scientific research has indicated that men and women are naturally different from one another. Whoa, shock, right? Did you know that? Men and different are women. Are, they're, they're different from one another? Did you know that? That's probably not a shock to you. But it is to some people, believe it or not. They're shocked by that truth, that revelation. This, the research shows that men and women are different. Wow, do we have to do research to prove that? Well, apparently we, for some people we do. Anyway, Christine Gorman wrote in Time Magazine an article called Sizing Up the Sexes. Sizing Up the Sexes. Anyway, here's, here's what she wrote. This was done back in 1992. She says, Many scientists rely on elaborately complex and costly equipment to probe the mysteries confronting humankind. Not Melissa Hines. The UCLA behavioral scientist is hoping to solve one of life's oldest riddles with a toy box full of police cars, Lincoln logs, and Barbie dolls. Hines and her colleagues have tried to determine the origins of gender differences by capturing on videotape the squeals of delight, furrows of concentration, and myriad decisions that children from age 2 to 8 make while playing. Although both sexes play with all the toys available in Heinz's laboratory, her work confirms what most parents already know. As a group, the boys favor sports cars, fire trucks, and Lincoln logs, while the girls are drawn more often to dolls and kitchen toys. During the feminist revolution of the 1970s, talk of inborn differences in the behavior of men and women was distinctly unfashionable, even taboo. Once sexism was abolished, so the argument ran, the world would become a perfectly equitable, androgynous place, aside from a few anatomical details. But biology has a funny way of confounding expectations. Rather than disappear, the evidence for innate sexual differences only began to mount. Another generation of parents discovered that despite their best efforts to give baseballs to their daughters and sewing kits to their sons, girls still flocked to dollhouses while boys clambered into tree forts. End quote. <laughs> well, the cover of that magazine reads this Why are men and women different? Why are men and women different? Well, if your worldview matches up with my worldview, the answer is pretty obvious, isn't it? Is it not just upbringing, like some people say? Are you a result exclusively of your upbringing, your environment that you grew up in, you know, your school, your parents, your country that you grew up in, your friends? New studies show they are born that way. 
From the Bible, we know that that is true. We are born. God makes us the way we are. We're also, we also know that the reason we're born different is that God designed us that way so that we could fulfill different roles within His plan. Yes, God is sovereign, reigns supreme over all of His creation, and even determines the different roles and functions that you and I play in, in His universe. Particularly in the arena of the local church, we have functions. Not just in our families, not just in society. But even within the local church, God has designed different functions for men and different functions for women. We understand, we must understand the unique functions for which we have been, we have been designed if, in order to fulfill those roles. How can you fulfill something if you don't even know what it is, right? So, part of this message is to inform us, it might be to remind us, it might be to exhort us to fulfill these roles, and if need be, as Scripture says, all Scripture is profitable, it's profitable for many reasons, and two of those are negative. Rebuke is one of them. If you need to be rebuked by Scripture, then so be it. The shoe fits where it, okay? We want to talk about today three different roles that the Bible calls us as men to fulfill, and this applies for you whether you're married or not, okay? Uh, no, if you're not married, you're single at the moment. Lord willing, one day you will be married. And there is a particular function you need to fill, be ready for, to fulfill. So let's talk about the role of men in the church. Many times throughout the Bible, God has, uh, has been pictured in the Bible as seeking for men. Seeking men to fulfill roles that He has designed for them. And, and sadly, too often, there are not men to fulfill those roles. Let me give you some examples here. For example, in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, it says, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Jeremiah 5, verse 1 says, Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. Prophet Ezekiel, verse, chapter 22, verse 30. This is God speaking, by the way. And God says this, I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. These verses indicate that the welfare of God's people rise and, and falls on men. Men are crucial to a church, to a society, to a family. Unfortunately, the absence of men who stand in the gap are, is just something, unfortunately, it's just common. It's becoming more common in our, in our own government, becoming uh, very common in families, and sadly common even in churches. The reality is our church will only rise to the Lord's standard if we have men who are fulfilling those roles that God has designed for us. We can't be a healthy church without men fulfilling the roles that God wants us to fulfill. And so you ask, well, what are these roles? <laughs> you keep talking about them. We haven't actually specifically talked about them yet. So what are these roles? I'm glad you asked. Number one, the first role we want to look at 
And you can turn in your Bibles for, to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2 to start with. The first one we find is, the first role, I should say, is God has called us to be loving leaders. Loving leaders. And I think it's important that both those words go together. Very easy for us to become a leader and be an unloving one. God wants us to be loving while being a leader. But then there are some people who, who the pendulum swing goes the other way. You know, they, they want everybody to like them. They're, they're very loving. You know, we don't want, to, don't want to make any rules lest we step on anyone's feet. And so, so they're the, the wishy-washy, squashy kind of a guy. You know, you know the guy I'm talking about? Everybody loves him, but never makes anybody angry with him. Never says any contrary words. And in the process is never a leader. You know that kind of a guy? Well, that's the other pendulum swing. We don't want to be that either. We want to be loving leaders. Now, leadership over the entire church is a role that's been designed uniquely for men. No, I'm not a male chauvinist, and neither was the Apostle Paul. Paul was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. By the way, these are not cultural mandates. These are things that, that uh, go past all cultures and all ages, when Paul says these words here in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Throughout biblical history of Israel and the New Testament church, all ongoing leadership roles were fulfilled by men. Okay, And by the way, that hasn't changed. In God's eyes, it has not changed. The biblical record clearly excludes women from such roles within a church. God has always designed it that way. You notice the prophets were men. The apostles, disciples were men. The writers of Scripture were men. Leaders in churches, the elders and deacons, were men. Anyway, enough of that. Let's look at what Scripture says. Okay, 1 Timothy chapter 2. This hasn't changed, but look what it says. 1 Timothy 2.11 Bible says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And by the way, this is the context of a church. It's in the context of a church, right? So talking about learning within a congregational setting where there's men and women present. Look what it says, verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Why? why? Why did God say that? Is it because men are, are more gifted and they're better somehow? No. That's, that's not the reasons God gives. In fact, in fact, I guarantee you, there's plenty of women out there that are better preachers than me. But that doesn't give them the right to usurp the authority that God has given to men. That's not the point. The, the reasons that God gives here, look at verse 13. He says, for Adam, he goes back to the beginning... The first man that God made, for Adam was formed first. That's the first reason God gives, while men are to be the leaders and the teachers. And then it says that Eve was created second. And then verse, verse 14, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So there's your second reason that God gives why men are to be the teachers. All right, Eve was deceived. 
Adam wasn't. <laughs> he willingly did wrong because he loved Eve more than he loved God, essentially. Anyway, look at verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So we see a little glimpse of the gospel there, don't we? So women have recently begun to fulfill those roles. But why is that? <clears throat> why, do we, why do we see a big change going on, particularly over the last several decades? Women coming into the pulpits, women taking up leader, leadership positions, types of others. Well, there's at least two reasons, okay? Uh, they're fulfilling those roles at, at least because of liberal theology, and number two, because of the modern feminist movement. So you combine the, the modern feminist movement with liberal theology, uh, you, you get bad practice. You've heard me say that theology drives our methodology. Theology always drives methodology. So if you want bad methods, bad practice, well, just change your theology. That's how you do it. <laughs> Change your theology, you'll get bad methods every time. <laughs> you know, the, the fruit on the tree is the result of the tree. What, what comes from the tree? Bad tree bears bad fruit, Jesus said. So, the liberal theology, which questions the Bible and, and believes all sorts of things that are anti-biblical, anti-Christ, anti-God, uh, as a result of that, we, we've, we've come to the mess we have today. And the modern feminist movement has, has, uh, has gladly wrapped their arms around this bad theology of liberal theology. They embrace it. And, and sadly, even some evangelicals have been writing, so-called evangelicals, have been writing books promoting the, the feminist movement. So those are a couple of reasons why. So one of the reasons that the unbiblical idea of women in leadership has gained so much pervasiveness is that so few men are stepping up to take the reins and to steer churches. Same situation that Ezekiel talked about. God seeking for men to stand in the gap, so to speak, and God wasn't finding the men to stand in the gap. So sadly, there's a lot of you know, sincere women who are deciding, well, okay, men won't stand in the gap. I'll stand in the gap. I'll do it. Christian men today need to hear the words of 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. that says this, If anyone aspires to the office of, a, of an overseer, he desires a noble task. So, man, if you desire... The office of an overseer, by the way, same as a pastor, it's the same as an elder, same as a bishop, okay, whatever, whatever you want to use there, all the same office. If you aspire to be a pastor or an elder, God says you're aspiring to a noble task, a good thing. It's a good desire to have. The issue is, do you meet the qualifications? Well, that, that comes in the next part of the chapter, which we'll talk about in a moment. Well, that verse refers specifically to the office of a ruling pastor or a ruling elder. But one thing I do want you to see as, as, as we're going to go through this passage here in a moment is, 
the principles here apply to all form of, of leadership that men can be involved in, particularly in the church. Okay? So it, even if you don't fulfill the, the literal office of an elder or a pastor, God still wants you to have these character qualities in you. Okay? You understand, men? And, and by the way, women the character qualities should be in you as well. Okay, So here's where the application can, can work for you as well. God wants these character virtues to be in you, not just the men, not just pastors. All right? Now, you, you can't, there's a couple things there you can't do. I mean, you can't be the husband of one wife. Right? <laughs> kind of hard for you as a lady to do that, right? But, but you know, most of the things there are character what you are on the inside. You can fulfill those. So where the shoe fits, wear it then. Now, perhaps some of you men may hesitate to have a desire like this. You might say, well, whew, man, that would be scary to, to even aspire to the office of a pastor or an elder or an overseer. Whoa, that's a scary thought. If you feel that way, I totally understand and you should have some, in, in, in some respect and awe of, of, of being in that God calling you to that kind of a position. You should. In fact, the, the Puritans used to say the, the, the most fearful place to stand in the universe was in a pulpit. That's a good attitude to have. But that, that fear shouldn't paralyze us to stop us from doing what God wants us to do. So see, if you want to seek a leadership role, that's a good thing. But of course you need to meet the qualifications. And it's not something that's selfish, it's not sinfully ambitious to, to have this type of, de- of a desire. Okay, So if God has been working in your heart in that way, that is a noble thing, it's a good thing. Let me ask you this. Have you thought and prayed carefully and earnestly about the possibility of serving the Lord and His church in this particular way? Have you? Have you considered that? Have you prayed and asked God, do you want me to be a pastor? Do you want me to serve as an elder or as a deacon? Now, this this passage is not specifically for deacons. It comes a little later. But have you prayed that way? Are you confident that God has given you an answer of no? In this regard, I think you should pray. See God's face in this way. Are you developing your leadership skills in your personal life and in your home with the hope that God might use them for His glory in this local body of believers? Not just the universal church, but a local church. I hope you are doing that. Because the rea- here's the reality, men, okay, and ladies, here's the reality. Such men are needed, and with, without other elders, without deacons, our church is handicapped. We're handicapped. At the moment, it's like we're walking around with, with no legs and no arms, essentially. We're very handicapped without that leadership. And we'll never be what God wants us to be without other leadership. We need it. It's not healthy for a church to only have one leader. Not a healthy situation. So I hope... Uh, hope you're considering this. Without men, 
Our church is going to flounder spiritually, and sadly, we're only going to be disappointing to the Lord. So, we need loving leaders. Number two, our second role that we need to fulfill as men, God calls us to be effective teachers. Yes, every one of us, every one of us as men, are called to be effective teachers. The role of teaching the Word of God, of course, has been reserved primarily for men. Uh, we just read about that in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, but let me remind you what it says here in verse 12. 1 Timothy 2, verse 12. The Holy Spirit writing here says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Okay. That's not the only passage you could find that kind of instruction for the church. So, ladies... It doesn't mean you can't do any teaching. That's not what it's saying, okay? So don't, 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 run, that, don't run too far with that ball, okay? Uh, you can clearly teach other women. You can clearly teach children. The Bible's clear on that. But in regards to a mixed setting, the Bible is clear, ladies. You're not to teach men. That's reserved exclusively for other men. So God's plan does include women teaching the Bible to children and other women, but not to men, okay? Sadly, the lack of men who are willing and able to fulfill this role has contributed to the growing number of women in teaching positions. There's a lack, there's a dearth in this regard. So ladies um, see that, and and they they feel the need, and and so they're, they're stepping into those roles, one reason for this problem may be the common idea that Bible teachings the responsibility of pastors and elders alone. That's not the case, by the way. Many so-called laymen, I don't know what else to call you, um, never even consider whether they're gifted to teach or not. They think uh, they, they would, um, some people think, well, you know, do I have to attend seminary? Do I, do I have to have a Bible degree before I can teach the Bible? Do I have to be a theologian before I can actually teach the Bible? Do I need to know Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew before I can teach the Bible? No. <laughs> that's not the point. There's no qualifications like that in the Bible. So that's certainly not the case. Uh, maybe that's kind of a leftover thinking from, from Catholic theology where they thought you had, you, you had to be a priest to be able to teach the Bible. So there was this this unbiblical division between the clergy and the laity. You know, we, don't want to, we don't want to translate the Bible into common language because only the clergy and the bishops and the cardinals and the popes can, can interpret the Bible. No, certainly not the case. I hope you believe in the priesthood of the believer. You can interpret the Bible for yourself, and you should. You should be, as Timothy says, study to show yourself approved unto God a workman who needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's your responsibility. Every man in this church should be intentionally developing and practicing his teaching skills. We have a, uh, a class going to be coming up for that very reason, by the way. Uh, Lord willing, the beginning of 2013, I'll be teaching a class on... Uh, Bible study skills and hermeneutics. How do, we, how do you actually interpret the Bible? How do you study it so that you, you can cut it straight, you get it right? So um, 
I encourage all of you men to join that class. Uh, that'll be when the church history class is done. So you need to be developing those skills. Uh, so the reality is every one of us are teachers in some way or another. Okay? If you have children, you're to be a teacher to your children. If you have grandchildren, you're to teach your grandchildren. If you have friends, you're to teach your friends. If you have workmates, you're to teach your workmates. If you're part of a church, you're to be edifying one another. Okay? So even if you're not a father, you're, you should be a part of a church and you should be edifying one another. So you're to be a teacher in that regard. So every man is at least a husband or a potential husband or, or, or a teacher of some kind. And so God's commanded husbands in particular to be teachers in the home. Uh, let me give you an example of this in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Men, this, if you're a father, this is very applicable for you. Okay? And if you have grandchildren or one day will have grandchildren, this is also applicable for you. All right, so look at this. It says in Deuteronomy 6, verse 6, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. And the point is, be teaching. All times, okay, so you instruct, in the scripture, you instruct in the scriptures, you're mentoring through life experiences, all life experiences. Yes, children and grandchildren might find that annoying at times. My children do. Yep, dad's annoying, dad's weird. Yep, I understand that. But uh, hopefully it'll sink in. So the key to doing, or the key to doing that lies in Exciting personal Bible study. It's what is your, you know, what, what's coming out of your mouth, Jesus said, is what's in your soul, right? From the heart, the mouth speaks. So if your heart is corrupt, is dead, lifeless, cold, well, then you've got a serious problem then, because what's going to come out of your mouth is not going to be as edifying as it should be. And so. The key here is exciting personal Bible study. Because when we learn profound truths from God's Word personally and apply them in our lives, there's going to be a desire to, to grow. And, and then when you're growing, you're going to want to share the good news, the, the, the truths of the Scriptures with others. You're, you're going to be an unstoppable force, really. You're going to be like the prophet, uh, who was it, Prophet Jeremiah, you know, he... He talked about the Word of God as like a fire in his bones. He just had to, he had to get it out, lest it consume him. I feel like that sometimes when I come to preach. The fire's been building all week long. I've been studying God's Word. I get excited, and I'm like, man, I've got to get this out, or it's, it's just I'm going to go nuts. Well, you need to feel that way. It's a good way to feel. Well, if, if that's the case, you're growing, and this, this desire is growing within you. The fire is building, so to speak. You, you want to share with others. Then eventually, we're going to be like Colossians 3.16. Look at, look at this. Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanks or thankfulness in your hearts to God. So, if the word of Christ is dwelling in you richly, 
and God's word is affecting you, which it, it will, it will affect you. It's either going to soften or harden you. There's no middle ground. It's going to soften or harden. And it, hopefully it's doing softening. Then, then you're going to want to teach. You're going to want to, you're going to, want to admonish one another. And you're going to sing. <laughs> it's funny that mentions that there. Because uh, occasionally I just burst, my kids laugh at me. Occasionally I just burst out singing. Now I'll be walking around the house, I'll just start singing or outside or shower or whatever, you know. I'd be anywhere, just start singing. And uh, <clears throat> last, last time I did that, which was, uh, I can't remember how long ago, but last time I just burst out singing some, some Christian song. And uh, was it you, Heidi? I can't remember. One of my children says, uh, <clears throat> said something about that. And my wife said, your daddy's happy. Your daddy's happy. Really? How, how do you know? Because he's singing. He's singing. He's happy. He's in a good mood. God's Word is richly dwelling within him, and it's, it's coming out of the mouth. <laughs> That's a good thing. It's funny how the, what we say and, and the outward kind of shows what's going on the inside, right? That's the way it should be. It should be a natural thing. It reminds me of a... We, we watched the, the movie Luther last night. It reminds me of something that actually wasn't in that movie. There's a funny story. Because what, what Luther did say in the movie is, uh, as he was considering marrying Catherine, Catherine wanted to marry him, and he was kind of sitting on the fence. Luther said, uh, which was encouraging to me, you know, most mornings I don't even want to get out of bed, I'm so depressed. Well, that was enlightening, because I read a story one time about Luther. He was depressed one day, and kind of walking around the house moping, and so Catherine, his wife at that time, put on, a, put on a black outfit, the same one she wore to funerals. And Luther looks at his wife, what, what are you wearing that funeral outfit for? Did, you know, did somebody die? And Catherine said, well, apparently God did. What? Well, that got Luther's attention. Why? Because you're acting like God died. But she had a good way of getting her, her husband's attention. Praise God for wives who help sanctify us men. But the, the point is, uh, the Word of God needs to be richly dwelling in us so it comes out. If we're, if we're not meditating on the right content, we'll have noisy souls, and, and it might appear like we're some kind of a practical atheist, or as if maybe you know, we're living as if God has died. We're, we're living unbelieving lives in that sense. God... God, help us not to live that way. So, let's move on to rule number three. Rule number three is God calls us to be godly examples. God calls us to be godly examples. Yes, every Christian is commanded to be a godly example. So, so it doesn't matter what, what sex or nationality or whatever you are, God calls you to be a godly example. So this isn't just applicable to men. But men are especially commissioned to serve others in this way. This, this particular passage in 1 Timothy 3 is, is designed specifically for men. Being an example is, is an important part of effective leading and teaching. Those roles cannot be fulfilled effectively without being a loving leader. In 1 Timothy, as well as Titus, uh, we'll also look at Titus in a moment, they contain list of character traits. 
Most of them are character issues. It's not has nothing to do with are you a good businessman or you know, you know, how many how many three-pointers can you make or can you can you get a hole in one or you know, it has nothing to do with your sports ability or anything like that. But the primary purpose of those lists is to identify which men can serve in church offices as elder or deacon. But but I also don't want you to just exclusively limit these passages to that. Because there's a secondary purpose for us, for all men, for all men. Every man in the church is to be cultivating these character traits in his life. You are. Ladies, you should also be doing it as well. Now there's 29 qualities, which we'll quickly read through here. And then make a few comments, all right? Now, some of them are overlapping. Some you'll see in Titus, uh, the same as in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, I don't think this list is meant to be exhaustive. So, um, <clears throat> if, if you're thinking of something that's not in this list, by all means, work on it. Don't exclude it from your life, okay? Because you'll find other things in Scripture that aren't mentioned here. Uh, but hopefully, these things are helpful. You can maybe kind of use them as a checklist, at least in your mind. To, to evaluate yourself and ask the question, am I being a godly example? What does a godly example look like? I mean, you could start with that question. Well, Scripture tells us what a godly example looks like. How are we to behave in the church? That's the whole reason why Paul wrote Timothy, by the way. He says that you know how to behave in the household of God. Well... What does a godly example look like? Well, let's look at verse 1 here. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. It says in verse 1, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household well, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit, and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their, their, lives, their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. All right, so that's kind of the big picture. Let's, let's look at some of the trees, all right? Number one, the first one, which, by the way, is, is kind of the overarching 
character quality, if you will, is, is in verse uh, 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Above reproach. So everything underneath that kind of files underneath that. It kind of explains what it means to be above reproach. So when you look for a pastor or an elder, these, these are the character qualities that must be. Okay, they must be. That doesn't mean that, that, that a pastor or an elder is perfect. Of course they're not. But at least they should be growing in this direction. Uh, hopefully you can see growth. But above reproach means we live a consistent life of growth and godliness over an extended period of time. It's not just a one-off thing. It's not a flash in the pan. It's, it's something that continued throughout a life. And, and, and the reason for this is no one can legitimately question our salvation, our sanctification, or our sincerity. Uh, somebody described this as kind of like being the Teflon man. Being Teflon, you know, people can, can throw things at you, but they never stick. You're blameless. That's why some translations use blameless. You know, they try to throw blame at you and try to get things to stick on you, but it never sticks. Because you're the Teflon man. You're above reproach. God wants all of us men to be Teflon men. So there should not be any overt, flagrant sin that mars our lives. doesn't mean we're perfect, because none of us are perfect. We're all sinners. None of us are righteous. No, not one, the Bible says. But uh, if we, we live in open, unrepentant sin, then we disqualify ourselves from, from the office of elder or deacon. So this qualification is the overarching requirement here. And the, and the rest of the qualifications are elaborating on what does it mean to be blameless? What does it mean to be above reproach? Well, one of the things about being above reproach is you're the husband of one wife. That's the next phrase in our Bible, the husband of one wife. Literally in the Greek, you say, well, what, what does that mean anyway? Well, literally in the Greek, it means a one-woman man. It doesn't mean you're, you only have one wife for your whole life. Okay. It doesn't mean a pastor is disqualified if his wife died and he got remarried after his wife died. No, that's not what it means. But it means you're a one-woman man. This means we consistently express affection and devotion to our wives and never to any other woman. It means you be careful what you say, what, how you touch I'd recommend don't even touch another woman if you can help it. Don't be alone with another woman. Okay, be careful how you speak to another woman. Right. So um, you know you don't want to you don't want to say the same sort of things you're supposed to be saying to your wife, men. Right. You know don't don't say oh you're the most beautiful person in the world or wow you smell good you really look nice today. Or, you got to be careful about these kind of things, right? Lest we we can be accused of not being a husband of one wife. You say, well, what if you're not married? <laughs> That's another question that comes up. I mean, you know, I'm not, you know, if you're single or if your wife has died or, or uh, you just never got married for some reason, you know, what if you're not married? Well, this is not about marital status, okay? That's not what this is primarily about. It has to do more with your moral and sexual purity. So, so even if you're not married, there's, this is applicable to you. Men, okay? It has to do with your purity, your moral purity, your sexual purity. 
Okay? So don't be a fornicator, in other words. Okay? Don't have sex outside of marriage. Don't look at a woman with lust. You need to do what Job said. All of us men need to do what Job said. Make a covenant with your eyes that I'm not going to look on a woman with lust. Don't go where you're tempted. Be careful where you go. Talk to Proverbs uh, 4, 5, and 6. Talk about being, as men being careful. There's places where the harlots like to be. Times of day where harlots like to be. Certain types of dress that harlots like to dress in. Be careful. Right? Don't put yourself in a place of temptation. Right? If you know you have a problem with, for example, you know you have a problem with pornography, I know that's an issue with me. I could be very easily tempted by pornography and am tempted by pornography or uh, you know, illicitly dressed women that you might see downtown or the joggers, they're a problem as well. Yeah, if that's, if that's an issue, I know I can, I can look at them in lust. Well, try to stay out of those situations. So, that's, that's what it's talking about here. It's talking about our practice of sexual purity. And by the way, it's not just an action. Okay? Jesus was quite clear that we can be an adulterer in our hearts. Okay? So, in my actions, I may never be unfaithful to my wife, but in my mind, I can be unfaithful to my wife. Right? That's a problem. Jesus says, I've committed adultery in my mind, in my heart. And, and to Jesus, that's just as bad as doing the action of being unfaithful to my wife. So men, be careful. Be careful. Even if you're not married, you still need to be careful. All right? You shouldn't be looking at, you know, immodest women in a lustful way. Turn, turn your eyes. Don't gaze. Purity takes place, by the way, as I said, not just in action, but in our minds as well. Number three, we're to be sober-minded. Sober-minded, the Greek word literally means wineless. But in, in this case, it was used metaphorically to mean sober, to be careful, to be alert, to be watchful, clear-headed, temperate, and controlled in our actions. We should not indulge. By the way, this is not just in regards to alcohol, because um, you know, being careful and alert... And uh, clear-headed could refer to, to all sorts of other things, right? Uh, not just alcohol, right? There's other drugs and things we could take that would cause us to not be clear-headed, right? Where we wouldn't be alert, we wouldn't be sober-minded. So God's saying, you need to watch out for any of those type of substances. So it goes, it goes beyond just drink, but it could include food, it could even include some type of a pleasure that goes beyond the limits of, of Scripture and your conscience. Okay, So even a, some type of a pleasure could cause someone to be uh, uh, you know, not sober-minded. Number four, God calls us to be self-controlled. See that the, the next uh, phrase there in your Bible in verse 2, to be self-controlled. It means we're to be sensible, prudent, Control our thinking according to God's Word. God's Word is the authority. God's Word is to drive our thinking. Theology, always, remember, always drives our methodology, what we do. Biblical teaching is to be dictating everything that I do, I think, and I say. 
We should not be subject to whims of thought or emotions, nor should we accept our own ideas or the ideas of others without using the Bible to scrutinize what we do, what we think, and what we say. Don't just, don't just do something because, you know, hey, my, my friend does it. <laughs> That's a bad reason to do it. Well, my friend wanted me to go watch this movie. Oh, well, that's, that's a bad reason to go watch a movie, right? Number five, be respectable. Be respectable. The Greek word means orderly there. Uh, we should not live chaotic lives, uh, particularly single men. Be, be aware that too often single men are accused of living chaotic lives and and. And in many cases, the shoe needs to be worn because <laughs> too many times single men are out of control, so to speak, living chaotic lives. They're not orderly. So we need to live an organized, structured life in which we plan to make the wisest use of our time and, and we can be depended upon to fulfill not just big responsibilities but small responsibilities. Oftentimes, as the Bible says, it's the little foxes that are going to spoil the vine. So beware. Beware. The little foxes will spoil the vine. They'll destroy the vines. But be orderly. Don't waste your time. It's not your time anyway. It's God's time. So John Piper says, don't waste your life. (laughs) When you stand before Jesus Christ, if you're a believer, you'll stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ. What are you going to show for your life? Is it going to be wood, hair, stubble, or is it going to be the gold, silver, and precious stones? You going to, is it going to be something to show for your life? Or is it all going to be playing video games, and watching movies, reading fiction? Is that what it's going to be about? I hope not. That's a wasted life. Next, number six, we need to be hospitable. Yes, whether you're married or not, God calls you to be hospitable. Literally means a friend of strangers. Are you a friend of strangers? You regularly having people in your home? You regularly meeting with people? Being a friend of people in the congregation as well as people outside the congregation? By the way, it means that your house and your possessions belong to God rather than yourself. By the way, that can be a painful thing, I know. Very painful thing. Speaking of possessions, there was a Romanian guy who came to church one time several years ago, and he wanted to get a New Zealand driver's license. He came, he'd just come from Romania. And uh, <clears throat> so I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll help you learn how to drive. He didn't have money to have anybody teach him. I'll, I'll, I'll help you learn how to drive, right? So we got in my van. I you know, showed him lots of things, driving around various places, showed him how to drive my van. Then I let him drive. Well, in the process, we, I thought, well, okay, Let's, let's do it at nighttime when there's hardly anybody around. We'll, we'll drive through a neighborhood. Hopefully we'll be safe and he won't hit anybody. That, that was my worst case scenario. He's going he's to hit someone and kill him. And I'm, I'm the one, who, you know, he's using my van. So we, get, we drive in this neighborhood. <clears throat> so we're going through the roundabout. And instead of pushing on the brake, he pressed on the gas pedal. And we went right through the middle of the roundabout. Fortunately, there were no rocks and trees in it. But we did take out a lot of plants. The plants are flying everywhere. I'm thinking, oh, no. <laughs> there were some bad thoughts going through my mind at that moment. I'm, at that moment, I'm thinking, no, this is my van. It's not God's van. It's my van. 
and I'm, I'm not letting this guy drive my van. At that moment, I was really questioning my theology. Do I really believe that this is God's van? <laughs> right? So it's, you, you go through those moments, right? You, you know, your, your theology is tested there. What do you really believe? Well, that guy freaked out. He didn't want to drive after that. <laughs> so, if you're wondering what the end of the story is, so I, did, I didn't have to kick him out of the seat. He, he refused to drive any farther. <clears throat> but the point is, we need to have the perspective, even if God des- decided to destroy his van, let's say there was a rock or a tree in that roundabout, it's God's van, it's not mine. But, but I believed I was doing what God wanted me to do, using his possession to accomplish his purposes. So we need to be hospitable, not just with our time, not just with our words, not just inviting friends to our house. The house is not just your, it's not your possession, by the way. It's God's. Everything we have belongs to God. You need to be willing and ready to share them, even with those who may never do anything for you. It's not about what they're going to do for you. That poor person needs to be helped just like somebody who has, you know, a lot. You, so you don't want to just help the person you think, oh, man, they, they might give me something. No, that's not what it's about. You're doing this for God, ultimately. You're serving God. God's going to reward you, not the person you're helping. Big difference there. All right, number seven is you need to be able to teach. That is, if you're going to be an elder... You need to be able to teach. By the way, that's really the only difference between an elder and a deacon. Nowhere in the deacon qualifications does it say that a deacon needs to be able to teach. Because a deacon is is different from an elder. Elders look after the spiritual responsibility of the church. The deacons look after the practical aspects of a church. Like the finances and the buildings and, you know, know, opening, opening up the church and and, uh, you know, closing up, and all, all those sort of practical aspects. Able to teach means you've, you've learned enough of Bible doctrine that you know it, you've studied it, you're able to teach it faithfully so that you can accurately and effectively teach others. Usually it's pretty obvious when somebody has the gift of teaching or the ability to teach those who don't. You know, it's, it's kind of obvious, isn't it? But this qualification is, is, only, is the only one that, as I said, distinguishing a pastor from a deacon. The preaching and teaching of the Bible is, is, is the pastor's primary job description, so to speak. If you want to look at it as a job as opposed to a ministry, that's what a pastor needs to be paid to do primarily, to preach and teach the Word of God. That, that's hard work. It requires a lot of time for one for one Sunday morning message, I spend about 20 hours a week. Not to mention the other two times out of the week, I'm also teaching. Plus, trying to disciple people and evangelizing and counseling and all the other stuff that needs to go on. It requires a lot of work to do it properly. So, hopefully you're, you're striving to be able to teach. Number eight, don't be a drunkard. Don't be a drunkard. By the way, I don't like that term, alcoholism. It's like, you know, just, we, we change it from a sin to a disease. That's essentially what we've done in our society. 
no longer a sin, it's a disease and you can't help yourself. No, it's not a, it's not a disease, it's a sin. Being a drunk is a sin. And by the way, this is more than a mere prohibition against drunkenness. Uh, God says you, you shouldn't even have a reputation as a drinker. Our judgment shouldn't be affected by alcohol or any other drug or other type of substance. That's the point. No substance should be affecting us where we could be even, even accused of being a drunk or a druggie or something else like that. So be careful, my friends. Be careful. Uh, if you happen to be one of those people who socially drinks, you're setting yourself up for a fall. You're setting yourself up to be a stumbling block. Okay, Be careful. My suggestion is we don't need to drink alcohol, so don't do it. That's my suggestion to you. Number nine, we're not to be violent. <laughs> not to be violent. Literally, uh, literally means not a giver of blows. Not a giver of blows. We must not be violent type of people. Instead, we should react to difficult situations calmly, gently. Right? That even, even with people who, who might be violent or, or very verbal and abusive to us, God calls us to still be nice gentle. Um, we should not resort to any form of physical or verbal violence in our relationships, and that would include our family, our friends, our workmates, any kind of acquaintances. And by the way, even includes our enemies. Even our enemies. We need to be kind, gentle to them. and Speak the truth in love. Number ten, we're not to be lovers of money. God says we're not to be lovers of money. We should not be greedy for money. And just because you have money doesn't make you a lover of money. Right? Okay? Our society needs money, at, the, at least at the moment we do. <laughs> right? So, you have to live with that. Right? But there's a difference between, uh, as Jesus said, being in the world and of the world. Right? Jesus said we have to be in it, just don't be of it. Don't be consumed by it. Don't let that be your driving passion, your, your, your superior pleasure. Instead, may God be your superior pleasure, not money and what money does for you. Number 11, we're to be patient. Patient means gentle, considerate, and gracious. We should respond to others' shortcomings and, and even when people abuse us, we should still respond patiently with loving concern rather than lashing out with them with our, our double-edged tongue. We need to respond with kindness. Remember the Bible says revenge, that belongs to the Lord. The last time I checked, none of us are the Lord. <laughs> it belongs to Him and exclusively to Him. You leave revenge in his hands, okay? Not your, your responsibility. Retaliation is not your responsibility. By the way, men, this means we don't hold grudges. We don't gunny sack. We, by gunny sacking, I mean, you know, you know, somebody does something to you or says something to you you don't like, you, and you, you kind of throw it in your mental sack. And then at some point when the sack gets heavy enough, you just unload it. Right on that guy. And, and they're wondering, man, where did that come from? 
he got blindsided like a rugby player. You know, he didn't even see him coming, and he gets clotheslined. Whoa. Don't gunny sack. Don't hold grudges. Forgive. By the way, Jesus said 70 times 7, and that doesn't mean you keep track. <laughs> that wasn't the point. But you keep forgiving. Number 12, not, you're not to be quarrelsome. Not to be quarrelsome. It, it, it literally means not contentious but peaceful. You're to have a, a reluctance to fight. The last thing we should want to do is enter into a debate or a conflict, though sadly at times that that's going to happen. Uh, but we need to show the ability to disagree with others peacefully without creating division, especially in a church context. Okay, The reality is, uh, particularly as leaders, elders and um, pastors sometimes have to confront. By the way, I, 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 you may not be able to empathize with that, but hopefully you can sympathize with a pastor, specifically me, if I ever have to confront somebody. That is a very uncomfortable situation to be in. I can assure you, I've done what Luther has done many times and have many arguments with Satan of why I shouldn't confront someone. Not comfortable. But, but, as, but, but even when we do have to confront our own children or our spouse or a workmate or whoever, uh, hopefully we can, we can do that without being quarrelsome, doing it in a peaceful way, seeking peace, pursuing peace in the midst of that conflict. And number 13, we're not to be covetous. Sorry, Again, the idea you're free from the love of money and, and what money can get for you. You're not driven by money, but you're driven by God instead. And it means our motivations in our work, our investments, our ministry are never to get rich or to to have more possessions for ourselves. That's not what should be driving us. We should view money merely as a means to fulfill the scriptural duties that God's given to us in our families, in our church. Okay, Ephesians chapter 4 says we're to stop stealing so that we can give to others. Right? That's one reason God gives us money, so you can give to others. So we need to support God's work. We need to give to those in need. And uh, you're never going to do that if you're covetous. Number 14, the Bible says there in, in uh, 1 Timothy 3, we must manage our own household well. We must manage our own household well. That's not just referring to children, by the way, but it means we should have authority over everything that's connected with our house and our home, uh, not just our wives, not just our children, but it includes that. It includes everything. Okay, so if you have children, you need to be a good leader. You need to be a, a godly example to your spouse, to your children, to your grandchildren. You need, you need to disciple your wife. You need to disciple your children and your grandchildren. You need to be a discipler, and you need to be discipled yourself. You need to be growing. You need to lead... Ob- Um, lead them toward obedience through an exemplary life. Number 15 says, keeping his children submissive. Keeping his children submissive. We need to have our children in submission, men. It doesn't mean they're going to be perfect either, because you're not perfect. (laughs) Be gracious to them. 
you realize, if you, if you firmly believe you're the worst sinner you know, which you should, then that will help you to be a bit more gracious to your children. Okay? They're not perfect, neither are you. But they should be in submission. And that, that word submission there is a military term referring to soldiers ranked under one another in authority. All good armies have rankings, right? Starting with lowly privates going all the way up to you know, four-star generals. There's rankings. They're ranked in authority. God says there's to be submission in the church, in the home, in governments, so forth. And we're to submit ourselves, rank ourselves in the the authority where God has placed us. We need to pray and we need to teach our children to become believers who are well-behaved and respectful. By the way, not just so they're not embarrassing to you. That is a bad motivation. Although I must say I've been tempted by that many times. Okay? I want my children to behave, to to have good table manners. Heaven forbid that my children should go to someone else's house and talk with food in their mouth and their mouth open. Whoa, that's embarrassing. That is a wrong motivation. By all means, teach your children good manners and that sort of stuff, okay? I'm not saying don't do that, right? But that's not the primary motivation. They're to be serving God, do what they do because they love God. And number 16, don't be a recent convert, not a recent convert. Now, this is particularly applicable to a pastor or an elder. Uh, As you see that in verse 6, pastor and elder should not be a recent convert. So um, even if you're not a pastor or an elder, well, this, this, this means you need to be growing. Take action to grow as fast as you can to know Christ, to know His Word, so that that others can view you as as spiritually mature. That's the point. You don't want to remain a baby. As Peter said, you don't want to be stuck on the milk bottle all your life. You need to be chewing on some steak. So we need to be careful to cultivate humility in our lives so we do not fall into the pit of spiritual pride. That's one of the problems with a recent convert is If they're immediately put into a leadership position, they can easily fall into the pit of spiritual pride. Number seven, we must be well thought of by outsiders, and that's in verse seven. And and, uh, that's a bit confusing, but what it means, we should have a good reputation with those who are outside the church. So the Teflon man, the above reproach man, applies not just for people in the congregation, but it means... You live the Christ-like life wherever you are. Not just, you know, put on the mask when you walk inside the church doors. So does your conduct change when you leave the company of Christians? You know, do you, do you walk outside the church doors and immediately start yelling at your wife, your children, and, and your workmates? Hopefully not. We must be as conscientious, honest, and caring when we work as we are in a congregational setting or you know we, we we don't want to be one of those uh those weird drivers out there you know you know the drivers who are accused of road rage you know the kind i'm talking about i had one after church one day pulled up to a round um no sorry it's a stoplight stoplight over in hamilton east this guy pulls right up next to me gets out of his car starts swearing at me and yelling at me and i just okay i don't want to make this guy angry so i didn't look at him well, he got frustrated with that, so he broke my mirror. He just busted the mirror right off my van. Like, talk about road rage. 
Then he gets in his car and drives off. Fortunately, he didn't do anything to my family. So God protected me in that way. But we don't want want to be known as one of those kind of people either. Right? We need to be careful how we drive, how we speak, how we live. When we're shopping, God sees us even in those situations. Number 18, be dignified. Be dignified. We're to be reverent, serious in mind and character. We are to be men of dignity. That's what it means. Men of dignity. It means we should be serious enough that no one could accuse us of being frivolous or not recognizing the seriousness of spiritual matters. Some men are not very serious. Everything's a joke, right? God doesn't want us to be that way. Number 19, we're not to be double-tongued. Don't want to be one of those people who are saying one thing out of, out of your mouth in a situation, and in a different situation you're saying something that's exact opposite. Don't be hypocritical. Your speech should not be hypocritical. You're to be honest. You're to be consistent. Your life should be the same at work as it is at church. Your life should be the same at home as it is at work and at church. It's the same everywhere. You're to be consistent. Be careful not to speak with a double tongue. Number 20, we're not to be addicted to wine. Again, it's not just referring to alcohol, but it could refer to drugs or anything that's going to preoccupy us, where we can, we can become addicted to it. And now we'll skip over the next one in our passage here and move on to uh, uh, the number 21, is hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. You're to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. That's in verse 9. Uh, the idea is there we should understand biblical doctrine. Know biblical doctrine. Know the teachings of Scripture so well you, you can live it to, to an extent that you have uh, no unconfessed sin in your life. You are walking in fellowship with God. You're communing with God on a regular basis. That's the idea there. God's Word is... Is, is affecting you in all ways. All right, let's look at First Timothy, or sorry, not, not First Timothy, Titus. So we're in First Timothy. Go over Second Timothy, then to Titus, okay? Titus chapter 1. And we'll wrap up here with just a few verses. Titus chapter 1. <clears throat> Titus chapter 1. Verse 6. Titus 1, verse 6. It says, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer's God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Okay, Some of those we've already talked about, so I won't talk about every one of them. But uh, number one says, uh, or, or number 22 actually in our list is, we must not be arrogant. It's in verse 7. Don't be arrogant. Don't consider yourself to be more important than other people. Number 23, not, you're not quick-tempered, again, in verse 7. Not to blow up, not to, not to have one of those short fuses. 
Instead, God wants us to be more like a crock pot. You know, you know where you're slowly simmering away. There's, there's some emotions going on there, but you never actually blow up. Not quick temper. Number 24, lover of good. That's in verse 8. Verse 8, I've just skipped over several we've already talked about. We, lover of good is someone who rejoices in obedience. Someone who's rejoicing in growth, spiritual growth. Happy about that sort of thing. And, and, and so much so that we're gladly do whatever we can to facilitate that type of spiritual growth. Is, does that explain you? Are you that kind of a person? Are you the kind of person who go out of your way to help people grow spiritually? That's what God calls you men to do. Yeah, that might, it might look like writing an email to a friend. It, might like, it, may, it may look like uh, giving a book to your father. It might look like, by book I mean, you know, maybe a, a Christian book, for example. Right? It might, might, uh, might look, well, there's many ways it can look, all right? But a lover of good is going to find ways to, fulfill, to facilitate growth. And number 25, you're to be self-controlled. You're to hold yourself in check. The idea is there, you're restraining yourself, and particularly in regards to your sensual appetites. By the way, sensual appetites is not just sex. Okay? Sensual appetites can refer to all kinds of pleasures. All right? Restrain yourself in those. You know, if, you're, if you have a sensual appetite for sports, you've got to restrain yourself in that. You, know, you can have a sensual appetite for movies. You know, yeah, that can get out of control. It could be food. It could be a number of things. Okay? Restrain yourself in those sensual appetites. That's someone who's self-controlled. Number 26 there, verse 8, is upright. You're to be upright. Do not show partiality to one kind of person over another. You want to be counted as someone who is consistent in your dealings with people. You don't want to show favoritism. You don't even want to be accused of favoritism. We've got to be careful. It's very easy for us to become cliquish. Uh, particularly in churches. Churches are, are often very cliquish. You know, they, um, somebody new walks in and, and often they're ignored. The new person who walks in should be swamped with people. Hey, my name is so-and-so. How you doing? You know, where are you from? You know, and so forth. Introduce yourself. Love them. Get to know them. But uh, verse 8 says we're to be holy. Whoa. That means you, you're, you're a devout person. It means you constantly worship God by setting yourself apart from sin and anything that can tempt you with sin or tempt you to sin. That's what it means by holy. Careful where you go. You're careful with what you watch. You're careful what you do. You're careful about your friendships because iron does sharpen iron. So a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Be careful. Verse 28, we're to be disciplined. The idea is there is your self-control. It means we have developed the habit of fighting and overcoming our sinful desires. Uh, and as opposed to that, is, is someone who gives in to their, their sinful desires. They, they love their sin, so they just give in to it. They, they, they're just unrestrained. But a disciplined person knows those sinful desires, is aware of them, and does everything to fight them. So practice personal discipline. And it's not just in regards to moral issues. That can include non-moral issues as well. And then the last one is, we must hold firm to 
the trustworthy word. That's what verse 9 says. Hold firm to the trustworthy word. It means study your Bible, know your Bible well enough, you're able to hold a conversation with a heretic or a Christian or even a misled Christian. Do you know your Bible that well that you can do that? Do you know your Bible so well that you can hold a conversation even with a heretic or a false teacher? That's the idea there. When you look, look at verse 9, Titus 1, verse 9, it says that, uh, that you should know the Word so well that you are able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Men, every man in here, this is your responsibility. Your responsibility. Every man is responsible to be a theologian. Not just the theologians who teach in some seminary somewhere, but you as well. You are to be able to contradict those who are heretics or who are misled Christians. So these standards that God has set for us are are high, granted. (laughs) They're very high, but we're all capable of doing these things, or God wouldn't have put these here. We're capable of being this kind of an example. And you say, well, how? How is this even possible? I mean, you might be sitting here thinking, as this list went on, I've just been getting shorter and shorter, right? I'm I'm getting squashed under this 29 virtue list. That's impossible. Yeah, in your own strength it is. In your own strength it is. You cannot do these things in your own strength. So the answer is, how can I do this? It's through the power of the Holy Spirit. These are character qualities that God works in you. Pray for them. Seek them with all your hearts. Study the scriptures to know more about these sort of things. And so my prayer is God's going to grant to our church more men like this who are going to pursue these roles of loving leader, effective teacher, and godly example. Would you pray with me in that regard? God would make you that way. God would make others this way. God would bring others here that are loving leaders, effective teachers, and godly examples.